Turn in your Bibles this morning, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we are slowly moving our way to the finish line in 1 Thessalonians. And um, today, to slow it down even more, we're only going to look at two words. Don't get too excited. That doesn't mean anything. We're just looking at two words. You're not getting out early. Uh, maybe you will. Um, anyways, uh, you know up to this point, we've been discussing what's going on in 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul's been there. Him and uh, Silas and Timothy, they had come through. They had uh, preached the gospel. People were saved. They were meeting in Jason's house, having small group in Jason's house. And the people in the marketplace, the city officials, everybody was in an uproar. And so they dragged, they dragged Jason and some other believers down to the politarchs, the city rulers, and uh, want to know where this Apostle Paul guy is and these other folks that have been there causing all this problem. From their perspective, that's what it was. And so they uh, couldn't find Paul, and so uh, when Jason finally got back to Paul and Timothy, he said, look, you've got to get out of town, they're looking for you. And so Paul and Timothy move on. They end up going uh, to uh, Lagrange, the little town out of the way called uh, Berea, uh, and that was like a you know a little town out of the way. Uh, and so they went there, and those folks listened, received the word, and they began to search the scriptures because what the apostle Paul is teaching was what was in the Old Testament. And is this really the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of those prophecies? And Paul is saying this in the synagogue there, and so these people are searching daily to see if what was being said is true. And it was. So many believed. Well, those in Thessalonica heard, "Uh uh-oh, those troublemakers are down in Berea, over in Berea. Let's go over there. So they got a mob and ended up running them out of town there. And so eventually, uh, Paul, concerned with those believers in Thessalonica, he sends Timothy back into town to check on them. He ends up uh, eventually settling in Corinth where he writes this letter. Now, by this point, Timothy's already come back to Paul, and he's given him a report. He says, hey, things are going pretty good over in Thessalonica. And he's bringing them up to speed as to what's been going on with those believers. So Paul is writing this letter in response, and so we've gone through a lot of things up to this point, but today we're going to pick up in chapter 5 and verse 16. Uh, so, in this kind of, in, in the initial context here, uh, we already know that there's a couple of things that we've looked at over the past few weeks. We've looked at the sheep's relationship to the shepherd. You, you remember that? That was right there in, in verse uh, 12. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and, est- and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. He's, he's already talked about brethren, verse 14. Uh, warn those who are unruly. And by the way, we, we hit on this big time. Paul has is, is, is written and he's, he's dealt with the sheep's relationship to the shepherd. And he's now he's looking at the sheep to the sheep because remember he uses this word brethren. And that's you guys. He says, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one 
renders or tenders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. So we've looked at the sheep's relationship to the shepherd, the sheep to the sheep. Now we're going to look at the relationship with, from the sheep to the great shepherd. And Paul kind of transitions right here in this letter. We know what it looks like within the church. But now he says, now let me encourage you with that relationship with the great shepherd. Notice if you would in the text. And I'll go ahead and read the context here. Uh, and then we'll pick up from there. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. Test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. Amen. I've got three points this morning. Three points that I want to hit on. And uh, I want to start with just this first phrase in verse 16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Sounds simple enough. Rejoice always. My first point is because it's required. This is a command. Notice if you would there. It's an imperative. In the original language, in the Greek, it's an imperative. It literally reads, always rejoice you. That's the way it actually translates. Always rejoice you. Or at all times be rejoicing. At all times be rejoicing. It's an imperative. It's a command. Notice, there's a verb here. This verb is an active voice. This means that the subject is causing the action. You. You. Is causing the action, is the one who's responsible for the action. So, what's Paul saying? He's saying that you and I have a responsibility to always rejoice. What about the adverb? This is the Greek word, pantote. It means at all times, always, and forever. All times. Wait a minute, Pastor. You don't know what I've been going through. You you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm facing. You're right, I don't. But I know what God says in His Word, and I know that this is a command. And I know that the Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. This is an appeal to the will. You have a part in your rejoicing regardless of the circumstances. You are to choose joy. That's what's implied here in Paul's letter. And again, when you take into consideration everything that's been written up to this point and all that's been going on in Thessalonica, 
Remember, some of them were concerned. Well, we've had people who've died. We, we've had family members that have gone to the grave. Are they going to miss out on that great moment, the, the rapture? Of the, have they missed out on the great day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord to take us? And remember, Paul's written to encourage them. Say, no, 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 no. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who are alive and remain, we should meet them in the air. We have reason to rejoice. But we, we have an active part. God's given us every reason, and we're going to look at those reasons this morning. But I want you to know, Christian, if you're here, I don't, it doesn't matter the circumstances you're in or facing. God has commanded you, rejoice. Always. Now that's easy said, hard done. So let's see if we can't dig a little deeper into this phrase, into these two words. Let's try to find out what the Apostle Paul really means here. It's required. John MacArthur says it this way. There's no event or circumstance that can occur in the life of any Christian that should diminish that Christian's joy. Let me say that again. There is no event or circumstance that can occur in the life of any Christian that should diminish that Christian's joy. Um, example. What... what MacArthur saying there, it doesn't matter what you're facing. In fact, he goes on and says that if you're not rejoicing, it, it, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, that if you don't rejoice in these situations, that it's sin. You never thought about it like that, huh? Well, what do you mean? Well, Think about it. If it's not done in faith, if if you find yourself in a situation where fear has taken over, are you trusting the Lord? Or are you doubting? Is doubt sin? Here's the thing. I've spoken on this before. You've heard me say this phrase a lot of times. Happiness is based on happenings. Whatever's happening in your life can create happiness. But happenings change. Circumstances change. We don't want just happiness. We want joy. We want peace. That's an an internal abode. That's that's something that irregardless of my happenings, irregardless of the happenstance that's going on around me, I can still go through those storms with a peace, with a joy that passes all understanding because of who Christ is. So, we rejoice always because it's required. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Notice where our rejoicing is. It's not in our circumstances. Our rejoicing is in the Lord. No, I don't expect you, oh, you know, hey, I, I uh, you know, just, just had someone very close to me pass away. Praise the Lord. I'm rejoicing. You can if that person knows the Lord. You see, because your rejoicing is in the Lord in what He has done for that family member. Because you know, based upon the promises of God, that family member is in the presence of God. 
So I can rejoice over that. Does it still hurt? Do I still miss them? Absolutely. Look, Paul talked about that too. He says, uh, rejoice with those who are rejoicing, uh, sorrow with those who are sorrowful. He, he's, but again, that is, that is a current, that's addressing that circumstance on the, on the externals, but the internals is peace, joy, irregardless of what our circumstances are. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, just in case you didn't get it the first time. Paul repeats it. Again, I will say rejoice. Do you think God wants us rejoicing? I think He wants us rejoicing. Because it's required. Point two, because of our relationship. How can I rejoice, preacher? How can I go through these situations and... and, and And you expect me to rejoice. Well, because of our relationship. Think about this. Turn with me over to Matthew. Everybody turn to your Bible. Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Notice in in Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus speaking says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice again there, we're told, To rejoice. It's the same verb form used. It's an imperative. It's a second person plural. He's saying, you, rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For they also prosecuted those prophets before you. They can rejoice for whom they belong to. It confirms who you are. Notice that text. He says, Blessed are you when you reviled and persecuted uh, and all kinds of evil said against you falsely for my sake. You see, when you have a relationship with Christ, yes, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face trials and tribulation. That's what you've been promised, Christian. You've not been promised everything's going to be peachy keen, rosy all day long. Every day of your life. In fact, I have found that when you become closer to the Lord and following after Him, that's oftentimes when trials and troubles, persecution, suffering really begins to hit. Which is probably why most people are content with cultural Christianity. We want to be comfortable. I just want to be a normal Christian, comfortable Christian. If I get too radical, if I get too far in following after the Lord, too surrendered, then eh, that might make people around me a little uncomfortable. That might make my life uncomfortable. You see, we're called to rejoice always because it's required, but also because of our relationship. He says, your reward is great in heaven. When you live a Christian life, When you are truly following after the Lord in your ways, you will suffer persecution. But great is your reward. Great is your reward. 
I mean, you're in good company. Think about it. The next time you're suffering persecution, God has seen fit to allow you the privilege to suffer for His namesake. His namesake. And He says, great is your reward. The prophets, He cites them as an example. Look at them. Yes, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Some of us, just to be quite frank, we're not desiring to live godly lives. Maybe why we're not suffering a lot of persecution. But according to God's Word, He says, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. James 1, 2, and 4 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What? Excuse me, James, time out. Hold on a second, buddy. Count it all joy? Are you kidding me? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see... Those trials, those uh, tribulations that come into your life, they're there to help you become more godly. They're to help you to become more like Christ. Wow! God loves me enough to let me suffer. Sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? But that's exactly what we need a lot of times in our life. We need the pressure of a trial to become the people God wants us to be. Think about some of those precious gems, the pearl, the diamond. They only come about through intense pressure to produce that beautiful gem, that beautiful jewel. Gold must be purified through the heat, through the testing of the fire. God's given us physical illustrations, and yet in the spiritual realm, I don't want any part of that. Count it all joy. Let patience have her perfect work. You see, God is conforming us. He's growing us into the image of His Son. Rejoice always, one, because it's required, two, because of our relationship, and third, and my final point, is because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. That word became an essential element of Christian vocabulary. That word, rejoice. What do you mean? It became an essential part of the vocabulary. Well, the word, in fact, that, that, that word rejoice, listen to this fact. When believers met each other, they said, cherot, sometimes that word is translated in the New Testament as a greeting. All hail is an example. 
When Jesus came out of the grave in his resurrection and said, All hail to the disciples on resurrection morning, it was the word rejoice. Rejoice. You know, I I like that. Can you imagine saying, hey, instead of saying, hey, or hello, rejoice. Rejoice. Paul is telling these Thessalonican believers, rejoice because it's a command. Rejoice because of your relationship with the living God. And rejoice for the resurrection. He's alive. And because he's alive, I too will live. Rejoice. That's a lot better than hello. Maybe we just need to change it up around here. Rejoice. What up? Rejoice. You know? Some of y'all are going to get too carried away with it, you know. We're coming. Rejoice, Pastor! Hey, we got reason to rejoice. We've got reason to rejoice, irregardless of our circumstances. Turn with me to Romans, the book of Romans. Look in, in chapter 6 of Romans. I'm going to read a lot of text here. I won't expound on a whole lot of it. But I want you to hear this. Really absorb what Paul is saying in this chapter. Focus in. Let the, let the living Word of God speak to your heart this morning as you read through this. Notice in Romans 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. And that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin Reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members are instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." 
What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness as now present your members as slaves of righteousness, for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God... You have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we can rejoice always because of the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul is trying to tell these, these believers in Thessalonica. You can rejoice. Rejoice always. Because God commands it, it's required. Because of your relationship, if you know Him, if you know Him today, Christian, you genuinely know Him and He knows you. If He's for you, who can be against you? Storms will rage. Circumstances, pain and pressure will increase. But I can be still and know He is God. I can rejoice because it's required, because of a relationship, and because of the resurrection. The whole point of Paul's letter thus far, and think about this, in 1 Thessalonians, chapters 2, 13. Turn over there for a second, just so you can kind of get a glimpse of this. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Look on ahead to verse 19 and 20 in the same text. He goes on and says this. I'm sorry, in um, yeah, chapter 2. Did I just read the wrong verse? I did, didn't I? Sorry about that. Look over in 2.13. Let me read that one again. Or for the first time. <laughs> for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, 
which also effectively works in you who believe. And notice down in in verse uh, 19. For what is our hope? Our joy or crown of rejoicing. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul has rejoiced over the fact that the Thessalonican believers received the Word of God. He knows that their life has been changed. They have been transformed. And that's a reason to rejoice. That's his joy. Not the fact that he's getting stoned to death in towns and he's getting beaten and whipped and thrown in prison or that these Thessalonican believers now will suffer persecution because of the message he gave them. No, he rejoices because they received the truth and it's changed their life. You see, they can rejoice because it's required. You can thank God when you know God. Notice chapter 3 of of 1 Thessalonians, verse 3, says this. 3.3 says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Do you hear what Paul's saying to these believers? Don't let the afflictions shake you. Don't let the trial steal your your joy. There's nothing that should steal a Christian's joy. There's one thing the Bible speaks of that can steal your joy. Do you know what that is? As a believer, there's only one thing that can steal your joy. Sin. If you allow sin in your life and you begin to practice sin, you will lose your joy. Because, not that your relationship is lost, but your fellowship is broken. And that's why we find in 1 John that he says, confess your sin. And God is faithful. And He's just. And He will forgive you of your sin. And He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And your relationship can be restored. I mean, your fellowship can be restored. Your fellowship can be restored. Paul says you're appointed to affliction because of your relationship, because of who you know, because of who knows you. You can can count on this, Christian. Count on affliction because you're a child of the King. Just as they hated Him, they will hate you. Some of you aren't being hated enough in your life. It may be because you're not standing on the convictions of the Word of God like you should. Maybe we're not as as separated unto the holiness of God as we should be. Maybe I'm not taking up my cross and truly following after Christ like I need to be. Because that's too uncomfortable. People might think I'm a fanatic or they might think I'm a holy roller. And I don't want to be one of those guys. Instead, I compromise and I laugh at the dirty jokes and I forward on the the stuff that the Bible says, God says, we shouldn't even speak of. I partake in the 
pleasures of the things of the world in a sense that I know inside it's wrong, but I don't want to stand out. So I'm just not going to say anything. Sort of blend in. Now Paul is telling these believers at Thessalonica, you're appointed to affliction because of your relationship. And notice he also has said already in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 14. And I'll go ahead and, um, and give you, uh, let's look at 13 there ahead of But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Remember, Paul has written this letter to bring comfort because of our hope, the resurrection. Everything we've read up to this point, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Paul is basically saying, look, your relationship, your, your response to the great shepherd is this. Rejoice, always. Because it's required, because... It's our relationship because of our relationship and because of the resurrection. We have hope. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know the trials you're facing. I don't know what you're suffering. But God does. And let me encourage you this morning. Rejoice. Not because of that circumstance. You can rejoice because God has enabled you. He's not going to command you to do something that you can't do. But He commands you. He gives you an active response on the part of your will to choose to joy, be joyful in Him because of your relationship. And we can also endure those trials and tribulation because this is not our home. The blessed hope because of the resurrection of Christ I know the circumstances I face today will be gone tomorrow and eternity awaits where there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears. And if I can't rejoice in lieu of that, I question, do I really know Him? See, Paul wants these people to know they can rejoice. Rejoice always. We can rejoice not because of our circumstances or how we feel, but because of our faith is anchored in the fact of the person of Jesus Christ, regardless of how I may feel. I've heard it said this way. It's not feeling upon feeling. It's feeling upon fact. Brother Dean shared with me a poem this week, and it sums it up. Three men were walking on a wall. Faith, feeling, and fact. When feeling got an awful fall and faith was taken back. 
So close was faith to feeling, he stumbled and fell too. But fact remained and pulled up faith, and faith brought feeling too. Isn't that good? That's good stuff. You see, we can't let our feelings dictate how we respond to our circumstances. You've got the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His assurance that He is coming again one day. And this present suffering will not compare to the glory that awaits. Let's pray.